Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right. You guys are pumped today. <laughs> thank you. I And honestly, thank you. That was the first thing that I wanted to start with today. You guys have taken care of my family so well over the past few weeks. Uh, we, we've had a really rough month, as you can see. If you haven't heard yet, I got bit by a dog uh, a week and a half ago. And so I've been out for the past two weeks. Uh, but we've also had lots of sickness in our house, as I know so many of you have had uh, this month. So please keep the prayers coming for Aaron, especially. He's still struggling with health. And uh, how awesome was it, though, that my dad got to fill in, Pastor Jerry, two weeks ago, and Jake Curlin last week. That's so awesome. So I really, really appreciate them and appreciate you all for welcoming them and um, being so hospitable to them. Second, I do just, I want to urge you to to pray for our world right now. Um, Continue to be in prayer for Ukraine. I I am looking for ways to help. I've had a couple of you so far reach out to me and just say, how can we help? Like what's going on in the world of of church and and the AG? Uh, I always look to the Convoy of Hope. I don't know how many of you know this organization, but it is an amazing organization that helps in times of crisis. And uh, I do have a link for you in the sermon notes today. You can go to effie.church slash sermon notes or uh, click sermon notes on the app. And at the bottom of the page, there is a link where you can give and help. Honestly, a lot of a lot of the organizations that I look to, even Mission SOS, which is not far away in Sweden, uh, they're looking for ways to help as well. But we just don't know how to help quite yet. Uh, but but I'm sure that Convoy of Hope and Mission SOS will both find ways to help very soon. And so please give to those organizations. Um, I think everyone is is just scrambling for what to do right now. But pray, certainly. So we started this series, The Comfort Zone, a few weeks ago now. What, three weeks ago now? I started out with this series uh, with an account from Second Chronicles. Right? We talked about kings and armies and battles. We talked about how often we want to be the spoiled, rotten brat in our relationship with God. And, and him. we want him to just hand us our deepest heart's desires, don't we? But we want him to just give us an easy life, a peaceful life. That's what we pray for. Let me have a great day tomorrow. God, and, but also how that's not always the best thing for us to have a perfect day every day. But sometimes what we need actually is to be challenged a little bit, to be pushed out of our comfort zone a little bit. God might have something so much bigger for us just on the other side of our comfort zone, right on the other side of where we're most comfortable. And I'd like to demonstrate this again today by exploring the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament is a unique book in the Bible. Uh, This book is not just about the words of a prophet, as so many books in the Old Testament, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, are just about the words of a prophet to Israel. Jonah's not like that. It's a unique book in the Bible. It's not about the words of a prophet. It's about a prophet, the story of Jonah. It's about Jonah. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah. And it is during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. 
And this guy was an evil guy, a bad guy. Here we see Jonah in, in that scenario prophesying in the king's favor. Not against him, but in his favor. Amos is another prophet in that time who also prophesied, but against Jeroboam because of, of his awfulness of the evil that he was participating in. So already we're sort of skeptical of Jonah. By the time we get to the book of Jonah in the Bible, we're a little skeptical of him. He's prophesied in the favor of an evil king. It's fascinating to me that God uses him anyway. He uses Jonah anyway. Just as a side note, there is so much out there in the world today. There's so much on the internet today about false prophets, right? And bad teachers and whatever. There, there's a lot in the Bible too about false prophets. But let me just warn you here. There's a difference between a false prophet and a flawed human being still being used by God. We want to slap a label on a lot of teachers out there. False prophecy, right? Yes, there are false prophets out there. I, I tend to think that they come more in the form of like politicians and power-hungry leaders and like cult leaders, like things similar to that. People who think that they are the Christ. They are the Savior, right? Just put your trust in them and you will be saved. They're pretty common, but they're definitely in the mi minority. More often, we see flawed human beings still being used by God, still pointing to Jesus, not to themselves, they just get caught up in it. Like those are much more common, actually, than false prophets. Flawed human beings take the wrong conclusions all the time. If they see evidence of something, but they just haven't quite worked out what that is yet. They don't have the whole picture, right? The flawed human beings react out of emotion rather than logic, they see things filtered through their own pain, their own pride, their own prejudice, that that's what human beings do. And newsflash, I shouldn't even have to say flawed human beings because that's every human being. That's each and every one of us. We are all flawed. We, we say and do things all the time that we regret later, right? We grow and we change and we develop. We see things differently from year to year. It's just the story of humanity. It's the experience of humanity doesn't make every single one a false prophet. And I, I want you to, to know that going into this because Jonah is flawed. Not a perfect prophet, and yet he is a prophet. God still uses him. Now, if you don't know the story, we are going to read most of it today. Jonah is also a unique book because it is a very, very short book. It is four chapters, but 48 verses total. We're going to read most of it today uh, because... I want you to hear the real story. I know the, the, the name Jonah conjures up pictures of the whale, right? Jonah and the whale. That's the story. That's the whole story. I think I grew up, you, honestly, you don't get out of kids' ministry without knowing about Jonah and the whale, okay? You grow up in church, you know the story. Uh, but I, I think in my head, because of kids' ministry, it sort of stopped at the whale. It doesn't in the Bible, okay? So I want to specifically, intentionally read most of this to you today. So Jonah 1, verse 1 is where we're going to start. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. Just to give you a little context here. All of Israel 
hates, and I mean hates, loathes entirely all of Nineveh and the Assyrians. Nineveh is actually the capital of Assyria. They were awful people, evil people, murderous people. I mean, literally the worst. In researching this people group, I found out that when the Assyrians would come to conquer a neighboring nation, and they did this a lot, uh, that city would literally choose mass suicide over being exposed to the evil of the Assyrians. They were that bad, right? Uh, So you would think that a prophet of God would jump at the chance to prophesy judgment on a people like this. Yes, I get to go and prophesy their demise. Or at least uh, I get to go and maybe see them turned around. Maybe I can be an agent of change in this culture. And maybe I can do something to, to fix the evil that's going on in my world. I could also see him being a little scared to go. I mean, I, I think I would be terrified <laughs> to go into this people group. Certainly, uh, we have people groups like this today around the world, right? I, I mean, when you think of the Assyrians, when you think of the Ninevites, think of like Al-Qaeda or Nazis, like terrible people. Okay, this is who they were. So God is calling Jonah here. Keep thinking Noah or Joseph in my head. (laughs) Anybody else get Bible characters mixed up all the time? It is Jonah. Verse three. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. The opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Everybody say Tarshish. Just a fun word to say. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Imagine sleeping during a storm like that. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They're desperate. You can almost feel the desperation. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They're good guys. They tried to save his life, right? But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Jonah ran the opposite direction. None of this part of the story had to have happened. 
The Jonah and the whale story shouldn't have ever happened. If he hadn't, if he had just followed God, if he hadn't run in the opposite direction. I have known this story probably since before I could talk, right? (laughs) Like I said, you don't get out of kids ministry without knowing Jonah and the whale. I have preached this story before, but for some reason, looking at the story through the lens of the comfort zone, one phrase jumped out at me, the opposite direction. The opposite direction. Jonah didn't like being asked to do something outside of his comfort zone so much to the degree that he ran in the opposite direction from God, which seems ludicrous, sort of. Like, how do you run in the opposite direction from God? But he ran in the opposite direction from what God was calling him to. See, I think that Jonah's comfort zone, based on his previous track record, His comfort zone was being right. His comfort zone was prophesying good things for kings. He liked to be the one, the bearer of good news, right? He liked to be the one with with good things to say. He liked being at the king's table and and being the king's favorite. He, He liked basically being a fortune teller for leaders, right? And sort of revered, looked at like he has an inside track to God. He's saying good things, right? He he liked being looked up to. He probably even got some riches and some authority, some power because of his gift with God. He liked that. This was his comfort zone. This, by the way, is is the downfall of some of those flawed human beings being used by God. Not false prophets, right? But maybe sometimes they like the light, limelight, a little too much, right? Maybe sometimes they lean into the fact that they are loved and admired. They get a little too comfortable in their comfort zone. And so when God asks them to do something that is outside of their comfort zone, they run in the opposite direction and calamity follows. His aversion to being uncomfortable, that's what lands him in this situation running in the opposite direction from the will of God, thrown overboard, and almost takes a whole ship down with him. Israel, in this time of history, is supposed to be this beacon to the world. They're supposed to be hope to the world. They're held to such a high standard by God because they're supposed to be the example to the world of how it is to live for God. They're supposed to be rich and famous and and prosperous and living this good life, but they keep doing this over and over and over. Throughout Israel's history, they run in the opposite direction from what God has explicitly asked them to do. They're not, it's not supposed to be their story. Supposed to be ambassadors of God's love, pulling everyone in the world into their circle. Instead, they are prideful. And in this case, they're even angry and bitter that God would save even their enemies. See, Jonah's problem isn't that he, he's lazy or um, even rebellious necessarily. His problem is that God would do this. Imagine this before we get to this part. If God showed up and he specifically showered love on people that you hate, how would that make you feel? I know what you're thinking. Pastor Kenneth, I'm a good Christian. I don't hate anyone, right? But first of all, 
really. Second of all, okay, say you don't. If God showed love to the person that you that hurt you the most, how would that make you feel? If God gave mercy to that that parent that abused you, the the spouse who rejected you, the mother who neglected you, the the addict who betrayed you, if if God showed love to the friend that used you, or, or even the political party that you think is evil, how would that make you feel? Jonah didn't run here in the opposite direction because he was lazy. It was actually a lot more work to run. He didn't run because he didn't want judgment to be proclaimed over Nineveh. That's exactly what he wanted. He ran because Jonah knew that God was compassionate and that by sending him, it meant that God would find a way to forgive those horrible Ninevites. He knew that he was supposed to be an agent of compassion for the Ninevites. That's why he didn't want to go. It becomes clear later in his story. He was disgusted with his own God. And he would rather die than live with the God that forgives his enemies. Because that made him uncomfortable. Look, a lot of us, we're here too. We want to see Jonah in this terrible light, like paint him as such a bad guy, but honestly, we're here too. We can trust God with vengeance sometimes, and we know we're supposed to as good little Christians, right? We're supposed to give it to God and trust him with revenge. And honestly, if if we can get ourselves to the place where we can trust God with vengeance instead of taking it for ourselves, then we, we begin to think we're owed vengeance by God. We're owed it. We deserve it. And if we get ourselves into this place where we say, okay, God, I know I'm a good Christian. I know I'm supposed to let judgment up to you, and so I won't pay it back. I won't try to get retribution. I won't try to get vengeance on my own. But God, if you don't take care of it, I will. Only if you're going to take care of it, God, then I can let it go. Only if their life is just terrible from here on out. Only if you, you reach down from heaven and smite them. You, you rain fire upon them. Then we'll be all right. But if you don't, I'm still going right? to. We only let things go to a certain point. This is where Jonah is. And so, the last verse of chapter 1 says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, this is one of the parts that we're going to skip only because it's a lot to read. But he prays this repentant prayer, and he, he really does. He talks about his experience at the bottom of the ocean, the change of heart that he's had. And then the Lord commands this fish, and it vomits Jonah onto dry land, verse 10. I imagine this experience would change a person significantly, (laughs) right? I I mean, I got bit by a dog a week and a half ago, and I still feel a little different. (laughs) Imagine being swallowed by a whale. I I can't even imagine the smell, the filth. I did a little research into what this would actually be like. You know, there are people since Jonah that have claimed to have been swallowed by a fish and have lived (laughs) through the experience. 
the, they describe the smell. You can literally look this up, like Google it. <laughs> the smell, the filth, the terror. Can you imagine being on the inside of a living thing? Ugh. I don't think we can overestimate the effect this experience would have had on Jonah. I really don't. I think God used this experience. Now, hear me on this. God didn't cause this experience. Jonah's disobedience caused it. Jonah was running away, but God did use it. He used this experience. He, he, he began to mold Jonah into a person that would be submissive. He began to mold Jonah in a person that he could use an obedient servant. Jonah was broken and dirty and hungry and completely reliant on God in that fish. 100%, three days and three nights. That's a person God can use. That's a person that, that can preach. That is a person that can turn a city around. That's a person that can be used by the Holy Spirit. We often think we have to be perfect before we come to God or can be used by God. And honestly, it's it's the broken that are the most effective. The ones who know they are sinful and hopeless without God that are the most effective. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message that I give you. Some versions here say that not only the word of the Lord came, but the spirit of the Lord came at this point. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Finally. I feel like it should say finally. <laughs> now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, listen to this. This is the entire part of the sermon that we get anyway. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Period. End of sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Anyone else find this a little odd so far? I need a little bit more detail. <laughs> from this story. Like, he barely said any words. Let me just read it again. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In English, that's what? Seven words? In Hebrew, I looked it up, it's five words. Five. Jonah put the literal bare minimum amount of effort into completing this task that God had assigned him. No preparation for this sermon. He didn't travel the whole city even says it's three-day-long city, he traveled one day in, said five words, and peaced out. And yet, the Ninevites believed God. Easy peasy. I don't feel like he deserves the level of success that he achieves with this sermon, personally. <laughs> As someone who, like, writes and researches for hours every week on every sermon I write, it just doesn't seem fair, to be completely honest. But like, he didn't say, let me just read it again. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the whole sermon, guys. Like he doesn't, well, there's some things missing from this, I feel like. Like it doesn't explain what they've done wrong. It doesn't talk about all the horrors that they've inflicted upon the earth. It doesn't say what they should do to fix it. It's still up there. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. <laughs> a lot missing from the sermon. It doesn't even mention God. 
yet, Nineveh doesn't dig in and get angry and prideful. They didn't need much telling at all to change. They weren't even promised anything if they changed their ways. They were just hopeful that God was merciful. This is the faith of a mustard seed. This is the smallest amount of faith that somebody can have. I mean, they weren't given any promises, right? Proving that it's not the preacher doing the convicting work. It's the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This proclamation, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. I have a different version than you guys do, don't I? I read from the screen. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. No one. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. My virgin says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This book is full of opposites. The, the mur- most murderous people on planet Earth at this time so quickly change and turn back to God. I talk to people all the time who are so worried about people in their lives who just seem so far from God. And I tell them all the time, look, they are not the people that are furthest. If they're passionately against God, they can be passionately for him pretty quickly. It's the apathetic ones that are further than you think. This book is full of opposites. This king, think king of the Nazis, right? King of Al-Qaeda, like a murderous, terrible, no regard for human life kind of person. He repents after five words. Turns immediately. Makes everyone else, even the cows had to repent. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Everyone repented in this nation. Maybe they had heard about the whale situation. Maybe word got out. Maybe Jonah stunk to high heaven and they just had to know why. I don't know. Maybe they were responding to Jonah's brokenness. The fact that usually when they encountered Jews, they were wearing robes and garments and tassels. They were very prideful people. They looked down their noses at them. Here was a broken guy, a guy who stunk like stomach acid and rotting fish. (laughs) A broken man, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was just weird enough to work. A lot of us, we want to be used by God, but we aren't willing to seem weird. Not even a little. We aren't willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of someone else being free. And Jonah wasn't either. After his encounter with the whale, he did the right thing, and the entire nation repented. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Good day, right? That's a happy day. He didn't bring the destruction he had threatened from a five-word sermon from a prophet who barely obeyed. Again, proving that it's not my words up here that will change you. No preacher can change you. 
work of the Holy Spirit. It's your own heart becoming softened. I can get up here and say a five-word sermon, and 120,000 people might get saved. I mean, that's a, that's a good day in a preacher's book. Jonah should have been jumping up and down. I mean, he should have been so happy. But after all of this, Jonah's problems are not done. In fact, he's not happy. 120,000 people in this city that's three days long repent. And verse 1 of chapter 4 said, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. Why? Why? Your sermon worked. Your mission completed, accomplished. Why? Why are you not happy? And yet we do this too. We we see people change their lives and we doubt it. We get angry about it. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us examine our own pride, realize that we too could be a murderer, even the right situation. I I know, don't look at me like that. You could. We all could. I know the the like prideful nature in us wants to say, oh, I could never, Pastor. I'm not capable of that kind of violence. You could, though. Under the right circumstances, anyone is capable of anything. We are all human. What makes us uncomfortable is admitting that we could. What makes us uncomfortable is letting down our pride for a second because our pride likes to say, no, 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 I'm better than that. I'm a good person. I'm not evil. I'm not that flawed. Yes, you are. In the right circumstances, anyone can be. That's why it makes us uncomfortable. The comfort zone is a dangerous place sometimes. Pride can be comfy. We settle into it. We cozy up to it. Feels really good to be proud. To be good. I'm a good person. Surely God wouldn't send me to hell. A good person. Jesus said, no, not one is good but the Father, not one. The Assyrians may have been a murderous people, but they were not a stubborn people. They changed immediately. Immediately. All they needed was one prophecy. One. It's way, way less than the Israelites got. Ever. They had a direct line to God at all times throughout their history didn't matter. The Ninevites had one five-word prophecy, and they changed. God sees this change of behavior and has mercy on them. Jonah 4, where are we at? Verse 2. Jonah, he complains to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away from Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God. Sounds like a good thing, but not coming from the mouth of Jonah. He is spitting these words at God. I knew you were merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. How dare you, God? You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Literally, I mean, he's saying it with that tone. How, how could you? Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. What? He's spitting these wonderful things at God. Putting them 
back in his face. It's, it's all pride. Jonah was so comfortable in his pride. He was comfortable when he was right all the time. He cared more about his own words and how they were perceived back in his culture than he cares about souls. Hope you can see the correlation. The American church is pretty similar sometimes. We care way more about what we think of each other about what the people sitting in the pews next to me thinks than the souls outside these walls. They are dying in their violence and anger, selfishness in their quest for power or popularity, and we can't even seem weird, be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. This is the situation Jonah finds himself in. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, combats anger with a question, not more anger. Certainly, if anyone has a right to be angry in this entire story, it's God, right? But instead, he asks Jonah a patient and kind question. Is it right for you to be angry about this? I feel like God asks me this question all the time. Is it right for you to be angry about this? He asks Jonah an introspective question. And if Jonah had been able to take a second, see through his emotions, he would have been able to see that. When God asks the question, does he need to know the answer? When God asks a question, is that answer more for you than him? Emotions aren't inherently bad. Anger isn't inherently bad. But we have to be using our emotions more as gauges. God is trying to help Jonah self-diagnose in this moment. Is it right for you to be angry about this? I'm going to sound a little psychological. I don't know what the word is, but we have to sometimes do this to ourselves. We have to ask ourselves non-judgmental feeling questions. Our emotions are our messengers, right? They're saying, you need to pay attention to this. I probably spent the first year or two of my preaching focusing on this. Like, ask yourself what's under the emotions that you're feeling. Because anger isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but what's under it? Anger hides all kinds of stuff. The Bible says there are three base sins, greed, lust, and pride. There's a whole lot more sins that we cover those with. But those are like the base of everything. Greed, lust, and pride. We, for example, will lie to cover up greed. Maybe we stole something. We lie to cover it up, right? Or we could lie to cover up a lust problem, an affair, a cheating, a something, an addiction, right? Or we, we lie to cover up a, a pride. We make ourselves seem better than we are. We have all these topical emotions, sins, behaviors, habits, that cover what's going on underneath. Is it right for you to be angry about this? God asks. Ask yourself, what's under that emotion? What am I trying to hide with that emotion? God, deal with me with that. Not just what's going on on the surface. God is trying to make him see what's beneath his anger while also showing mercy to Jonah even while Jonah was not showing mercy to others. God is so good. He could have yelled. He could have 
smited him, smote, smote him, rained down fire from heaven, right? He, he could have wiped him off the face of the earth, turned him into a pillar of salt, something. Joseph's job, uh, Jonah's job was done at this point. By the time they had this conversation, the, the city of Nineveh was repentant. They were, it was good. God is not just the, the God of nations. He is also the God of individuals. He dealt with Jonah on a personal level up on that hill. Trying to make him see what's beneath his anger. He was showing mercy to Jonah. Because the bottom line is, we don't serve a God who uses and abuses us like that. He doesn't just use us for his own purposes and then leave us, abandon us. Even though he would have been well within his rights to do so, I feel like Jonah needed a little smiting. But he didn't. And sometimes we forget that God is who he says he is, not who we say he is. We want to put God in these boxes. God is this, God is that. And usually we say he's this or that. More often he's this and that. He's all of it. He's both. He's everything. He can both be an angry God who punishes and deals with evil. And he is love, overwhelming, compassionate love. Romans 9, 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Meaning we don't get to tell God who to rain fire from heaven on. It is not our job. It's his job and his alone. And so instead of raining down fire from heaven on Jonah for being this judgmental jerk, he lovingly tries to show Jonah who he is. He is compassionate. Is it right for you to be angry about this? This is where we get to see a little peek into the anger of God or the lack thereof in this case. It's the lack of it, really, in this case that we see. Instead of God's judgment, we get a call to look deeper. It's a call to repentance, not just for the city of Nineveh, but for Jonah himself. God doesn't always smack us over the head with it. He just asks you to look deeper. And we deserve a God who, who gives us his righteous anger. Each and every one of us deserve it. God doesn't always give it. With every selfish decision that we make, we're showing God how we feel about his blessings. But God withholds his anger way more often than he shows it. By the time God actually gets around to ending evil, he's given us so many chances to repent. His anger is always justified and it's always righteous and it's always on time. Ours is rarely any of those things. What gives you the right? What gives you the right? I spent some time this week thinking about what would actually give Jonah the right. Maybe his whole family was killed by Assyrians. You know, we don't get that information. You could make a case that he had a right to be angry, even in the eyes of the world. Right? They were awful people. No one would fight you on that. Everyone would probably say, yeah, God had every right to smite them. Jonah had a right to be angry. But seeing things through kingdom eyes is a completely different story. The gospel changes everything. 
Jonah could have been a pattern of the gospel. He could have been a precursor to the Messiah. He could have said, yes, awesome. It's time for another people group to be shown the love of my father. Even if I have to die for the cause, I will happily go willingly for that God. Could have laid down his life for people who had hurt him like Jesus did. Instead, he was angry, really angry. It's at this part of the story, it's just so interesting. God provides a shade tree in this moment. He's giving Jonah an object lesson. This makes Jonah happy. But the only time in the story we actually see him happy. He's comfortable under that shade tree. He climbs up on his mountain. He's all set. He's got his popcorn. He's under a shade tree. He is ready to watch the city of Nineveh just get obliterated. He's excited for it. Until God tells him he's not doing it. Now he's angry, right? But under that shade tree, he's comfortable. He thinks he deserves the shade plant. It is his reward for doing what God's asked him to do, reluctantly though it may have been. He's very happy with himself. He's comfortable and grateful when things are going his way. And we're going to talk a little bit more in the series how dangerous comfort can be. But Jonah 4, verse 5. Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen. So he's sitting on this hill, like, eating his popcorn. He's ready. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, obviously, even angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though it did nothing. You did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry? For such a great city? Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And the book ends. The end. It ends abruptly. We don't get to see what happens to Jonah or the city. We don't know if Jonah repents or or God takes him out or what. But the book wasn't written for Jonah. The book was written for you. The We tend to put ourselves in the role of Jonah in this story. We tend to think that we've got it all together. We're following God to the best of our ability, and everyone else is just wrong and sinful and selfish and wrong. We get angry, right? And when God does show mercy, we get angry. How dare you, God, show mercy to those miserable people? What if we're not Jonah? What if we're Nineveh? We're trying to get ahead ahead in life by any means necessary. We're looking out for number one. It doesn't matter who crosses us. We got to do what we got to do for our children and our legacy. And and we can be ruthless and hateful, but not to our own people, just to the others who, who think they're better than us. 
I think they know better than God even. Those Hebrews, they have a God who hates us. He thinks we're unworthy. He must because that's what they believe. So we're going to hurt them before they hurt us. Isn't that what life's all about? And then God sends a man to tell us destruction is coming if we don't change. And immediately we change. But how grateful are you for that man? Even if he's flawed, even if if he didn't hang around to have a party with you afterward when God saved your life. I'd be pretty grateful. We are Nineveh, but we don't have Jonah. We have Jesus. Jesus could have felt the way that Jonah felt. He could have cursed us instead of blessed us. He was certainly the only one to ever have walked the earth that was qualified to judge us. He chose not to. He could have stayed in perfect heaven instead of entering into our broken world. He could have cursed us even as he died and he would have been justified. But he didn't. In fact, he hung on that cross dying a criminal's death and he forgave us. Jonah climbed a hill to get a good seat and some popcorn. He He was desperate for the destruction of people, but Jesus climbed a hill to crawl up onto a cross and lay down his life for us. Do we really have a right to hang on to our pain, our unforgiveness, and our anger in the face of that kind of love? I'm not saying you haven't been hurt today. Now, I'm not saying what happened to you does or should, doesn't or shouldn't hurt. It does. But the kind of love Jesus gives is so powerful. It can heal you from the inside out and not only heal that thing, but use it, the very thing that hurt you, he turns around and he uses it for the good of others. Can you trust him to do that today? Can you give him access to that part of you? Take down the prickly walls of anger and let him in. Anger can sometimes make us run the opposite direction. From all that God has for us, all of the good things in life that we're meant to experience, we run the opposite direction. This is a call today. I believe the word of God for this church today is to get us to stop and examine that. Give it to God truly. The kingdom mindset softens your heart. That's what it's meant to do. You don't have to run anymore. Just trust him. Trust him. We're not just talking about simple forgiveness today a whole heart transformation. That's the work that God wants to do in you. Stop putting topical band-aids over something that requires the surgery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to come into your life and change it from the inside out. His love changes everything. Knowing that he loves you even in your sin. Even when you're just like Nineveh, you're murderous and and angry and and you're selfish 
And yes, each of us, every single one of us is there from time to time. Or we harbor this unforgiveness for things that have happened in the past. I feel completely justified in doing so. But the fact that Jesus, the only one on planet Earth qualified to do so, he didn't. He loves you. And that love, that grace overwhelmingly takes care of the selfishness and the sin. Pulls you closer to him. No matter how far you've run in the opposite direction today, Jesus' love is calling you back. He's calling you back. And it's not only for your sake that he's calling you back. Again, God is not only the God of individuals, he's also the God of nations. He has placed you in friendship groups and families and communities that need your experience. They need your testimony. They need you to reach out and say, look, God healed me from this. I know he can do it for you too. God uses every single pain point in your life. It doesn't matter how bad it was. I'm not saying God put it there or did it to you, but he can use it for good not just for you, for everybody around you. He's calling you out of that whale today. He's calling you out of Nineveh to go into all the world and preach the good news. It is good news that Jesus came for you. It's not just for us to hold to ourselves like Jonah, to be selfish with it. It is for us to give. Can you Give up that pride, that unforgiveness, that anger you feel justified in today. Can you give it to God and allow that peace to come in, to heal your soul, and to spread that peace to the world? Stop running in the opposite direction. God, I pray today that you would help us truly give it all to you. We would let go of the unforgiveness and the anger and the pride in our lives. Start that process in us, God. Oftentimes forgiveness is not a one-time thing, it's a process. Maybe some of us are sitting in here today and we can't quite bring ourselves to say, I, I forgive that, that thing in my past, that abuse I experienced, the, the neglect, the pain, the betrayal, whatever it is in my past, God, I I just, I can't bring myself to forgive. God, start that process in us today. Soften hearts and minds. Let us allow the, the love, the overwhelming grace of Jesus to come in and, and heal it. Not just put a band-aid over it, but heal it from the inside out. Do that work in us today, God heads bowed and eyes still closed. Maybe today you're saying I've never given any of it to Jesus before. Never quite understood the sacrifice that he made for me. But today I want to give it all to him for the first time. Or maybe it's been a really long time. Give it all to Jesus. We call it salvation because it truly is Jesus taking over. Saving you from 
the unforgiveness, the, the anger, the very thing that you feel like is helping you, it's keeping you afloat, that unforgiveness, that pain, that holding on to it is the only thing saving me right now. Jesus wants to take it, heal it, save you from it. It's holding on to it is toxic for our souls. He wants to heal that thing within you. If today you're saying, I'm in, I want that, I want to give it all to Jesus, I want to be saved truly, I want him to be the ruler of my life, if that's you, for the first time or the first time in a long time, and you're sitting here in this room, would you just raise your hand right where you are? I want that from Jesus, I'm in to following Jesus. Or if you're at home watching, you can text the number on the screen or type I'm in in the comments as well. Love to help you with that decision today. Keep that hand raised just for a moment while an usher comes and gives you a little card with some next steps. Anyone else? I'm in to following Jesus. I just feel this hesitation. Maybe we're waiting on someone. Maybe today you've given your life to Jesus, but maybe not all of it yet. I'm still holding on to some some pride, some anger, some unforgiveness. You're not quite ready to say you want your enemies to experience Jesus yet. You, you don't want them forgiven. I mean, you're not there, but you want to be there. For the first time today, you're saying, God, I want to forgive. And that's the first step in the right direction. If you need prayer for that today, would you just raise your hand right where you are? God, I pray for every single hand raised, every single heart moved toward you. God, I pray that you would literally and figuratively come into our lives, change us from the inside out. You would purge our lives of all of that unforgiveness, the pain, the the shame, all of it. Change us from the inside out. Stop us from running in the opposite direction all the time. Pull us toward you. Expose those unhealthy thoughts and emotions that are covering something deeper. Help us, God. Be in us. Be with us. And let us truly be changed, that we we would leave here different than we came in today, that we would go out into our world this weekend and be deliverers of hope, ambassadors of peace. We would go into our workplaces and speak joy, that our, our joy would be infectious. It would overflow from out of our souls onto the people around us, that we would be so infectious with the goodness of God that people would stop us and ask, what is going on with you? And God, instead of us being afraid to answer that, well, we would be willing to be weird, be willing to be uncomfortable so that somebody else would be free. God, make us a church that changes the world around us. We don't let the world affect us, but that we go out and affect it like Jesus did. Move us out of our comfort zone, God. Challenge us 
grow us. Let us be agents of change in this world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. 